really quickly, listen, I know the game starts at 1, okay? You don't have to say anything, I'm well aware. And I'll make you a deal. All right, listen. If you will silence your cell phones, I'll get you out in time for kickoff. All right? But every cell phone that goes off, I'm starting the clock over. All right? Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> this morning, we're going to continue our series uh, called We Believe. We've been studying some of the foundational doctrines that we pull from Scripture and that we believe here at True Vine. These are, these are very important to us, okay? Uh, there's, there's a, there are some things that we say, well, we agree to disagree, and you can have your opinion on this, and you can have your opinion on that, but this is stuff that we think the Bible is very, very clear about. And this morning we're going to talk about Jesus as our sanctifier. Okay? So uh, you can prepare for that. If you have a Bible on you, if you're using your silented cell phone, uh, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to spend most of our time in the beginning of 1 Corinthians this morning. Before we get started, I want you to use your imagination. Okay? I want you to imagine a hypothetical marriage, okay? This is not a real marriage. I'm not talking about you, okay? I just want you to imagine a hypothetical marriage where the husband and the wife were not uh, dedicated to one another. Just imagine a marriage where the husband and the wife, they like each other, they enjoy each other, but they're not dedicated. There's not a commitment. You know what I mean? Like, hey, I like you. You're, you're fun to be around. You don't get on my nerves that much. But there's not a, there's, there is no sense of we will be together forever because there's no dedication, right? So in that same marriage, imagine not only is there no dedication, but there is no separation from previous relationships. They both kind of have old flames, in their back pocket, what we would call in Philly a side john, right? So there is no there is no dedication or commitment to one another. There is no separation from old lovers or old relationships. Think about the quality of that marriage and what that would be like. That would be a horrible marriage to be in. Can you imagine the fighting? that would take place in a marriage like that, like the lack of joy. You know, in a marriage, you're supposed to experience intimacy and safety, but listen, when there's no dedication and there's no separation from old relationships, you don't experience intimacy and safety. You experience doubt, insecurity, every time their phone rings, who is that? I need to know your unlock code on your phone. Okay. That kind of stuff. Oh, you were 10 minutes late. Where have you been? And it would just be pick, pick, pick the whole time. Imagine the joylessness of a marriage like that. And, and some would ask, why even be married in that, in that situation, right? It's not enjoyable. It's not fulfilling its purpose. Uh, it's not what was... It's not what God intended of a marriage, right? Well, I believe that that description actually fits many, uh, the way many people walk out their faith in Jesus. It's 
lacking joy, it's lacking fulfillment, it's not meeting the design that Jesus has for it, and it is primarily for these two reasons. Lack of dedication and lack of separation. A lack of dedication to God and a lack of separation from sin. And in the same way that those two things would destroy a marriage, they make following Jesus incredibly unenjoyable, unfulfilling, and it doesn't meet the purpose, it doesn't fulfill the purpose or meet the expectation that Jesus laid out in the New Testament for what it means to follow him. So if you if that was your marriage, you might go, you know, find a marriage counselor or something like that. But as it relates to our relationship with Jesus, here's the answer to that issue: sanctification. Now, sanctification is a big word and if you don't have a lot of church background, you might not be familiar with that word, so I want to define sanctification. This is how we're going to use it today. A process or experience resulting in dedication to God, separation from sin, and conformity to the likeness of Christ. So I want to explain this really quick. Sanctification is a process or experience uh, the, of being made like Jesus. So sometimes it happens slow and over time like a crock pot. You know, it's just like, and you don't, you don't even realize it because it's happening so slowly, but day by day, the little decisions that we make, the little things that happen to us, the experiences we have, the, the things we read in scripture, the encouragement we receive from other believers, all of those things, they're, they're, they're slow, they're gradual, but over the course of a couple months or a couple years, you realize, I have grown to be more like Jesus. But it doesn't always happen slow. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it happens in an experience. What we would maybe call a spiritual crisis. Where something happens and it is like, bam, it's all happening right now. Sometimes that crisis is in a moment. Sometimes it's a day. Sometimes it's an hour. But it's usually dramatic. And it's something that you could probably put on a calendar. I remember that day, or I remember that moment. It's memorable, okay? So, people sometimes will argue, well, does sanctification happen in a process, or does sanctification happen in a crisis? We would say both. Jesus has the privilege to do whatever he wants to make us more like him. So if he decides to throw us in the crock pot or the microwave, he's the chef, right? All right, so... Uh, it is a crisis or experience that results in dedication to God and separation from sin. Dedication to God is not just you in your willpower, gritting your teeth and deciding, I'm going to follow God no matter what. Dedication, now, I think you should do that, but <laughs> dedication to God is referring also to your affections for God. That the idea of spending time with God is not this thing you kind of limp into like, I owe it to him. But it's this thing that you delight in, that you look forward to, that you have uh, a warmth in your heart for God and for the things of God. And then separation from sin is also not you in your own willpower, saying, oh, I, I really want to do this sin, but I know I shouldn't. Don't do it. Okay, now, I think you should also do this. But that's not freedom. That's you disciplining yourself, and that might work for a little while, but it's not going to work forever, because eventually you're going to be like, oh, I don't have to slap myself. 
I'm going to do this sin thing that I want to do. Here's what separation from sin means. And this is really one of the keys to Christian freedom. It's when sin doesn't even look good to you anymore. Like, it's not even appealing. You, you see that sin opportunity and you're like, that doesn't even look fun. It may be used to, but that, I just know the pain and the heartache and the guilt and the shame that are going to come with that. It doesn't even look good anymore. When sin no longer looks good, you are going far in Jesus. When sin look, looks good, but you just pump your brakes, well, okay, for a season you might have to do that, but I hope that that's not the whole story of your relationship with Jesus. So, dedication uh, to God, separation from sin, and conformity to the likeness of Christ. God's number one agenda in your life is to make you more like Jesus. And I'm just telling you, you don't get a vote. <laughs> He's going to do it, whether you like it or not. So you can drag your feet and hate it and go kicking and screaming the whole time, but everything that happens in your life today, last week, next week, it's all to make you more like Jesus. So you can cooperate with that, roll with it, enjoy the ride, or you can be like, I hate this! But I'm telling you, Jesus is driving your car that direction. You can look out the windows if you want, but that's the way it's going, okay? That's his number one goal is to make you more like Jesus. So when something's going on in your life that you are not pleased with, in a moment of clarity, you can remind yourself, Jesus is putting this in my life to make me more like him, even though I hate this right now. Got it? Okay, I mean, that's his number one ambition for you, make you more like Jesus. All right, so... That's how we're going to define sanctification this morning. We're going to spend most of our time in 1 Corinthians today. Um, when our church was very young, we did a series on 1 Corinthians. It's, uh, it took a year and a half to go through one book of the Bible. And then some people found out, there's a second Corinthians? Oh, we're never going to get through with this. But we took a year and a half to go through 1 Corinthians. We're not going to do the whole thing. I'm going to try to cover three chapters in one day today, much faster. Uh, now, Paul starts off, he's writing a letter to these Christians in the town of Corinth, and he says this, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So, look how Paul describes the Christians in the church in Corinth. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's good, right? They are saints by calling. So I'm going to call them sanctified saints. So clearly if Paul is calling the Corinthian church sanctified saints, these folks must really have their act together. They must be very well behaved, very Christ-like. Well, if you keep reading 1 Corinthians, you'll find out this is very much a Jerry Springer-esque church. <laughs> This is the Apostle Steve Wilkos sitting everyone down, and if you know who Steve Wilkos is, we need to talk, all right? The, the Corinthian church is an absolute mess. <laughs> These sanctified saints, let me tell you what was going on in this one church. They were fighting over which apostle they liked best. Some of them said, I like Paul. Other people said, I like Apollos. And they would fight and argue over which apostle was better. They were sexually immoral. 
All sorts of sexual immorality going on in the church in Corinth to the point where one man was actually sleeping with his stepmother. You guys act like I haven't told you this before. They were suing one another. They were taking each other to court over little things. They were practicing the spiritual gifts and it was leading to chaos. The way that they were prophesying and speaking in tongues was just, it was turning into a mess. No one was being encouraged or edified. They actually had a segregated communion. Uh, They would have one communion table set up for the wealthy people and they would get the best communion and then they had a separate room for the poor people to take communion in. Now, you know how like at Thanksgiving you have the adults table and the kids table and the kids table is usually like a card table with a blanket on top? Imagine treating communion that way. The, the meal, the whole purpose of communion is we're equal and united in Jesus, right? And they're separating and people were actually, all the wealthy people would get in line first and eat all the food. And so Paul says, if you're hungry, eat at home. Now, we'll never have that issue here. You get a crouton, and you get to dip it in the juice. Uh, They were fighting over communion. They doubted, some of them doubted that the resurrection even happened. They weren't even, I mean, I don't even know, then why follow Jesus if the resurrection isn't real? And Paul actually makes that argument at the end of 1 Corinthians. So, listen, these sanctified saints were not acting like sanctified saints. They were acting like immoral, unsaved uh, people of the world, right? So here, listen, think about this. If their behavior was horrible, but Paul calls them saints, that must mean that your sanctification is not about what you bring to the table. This is something that Jesus does for us and to us. Jesus is our sanctifier, You don't sanctify yourself. You don't make yourself holy. Their position, like their identity, is a saint who occasionally sins. Okay? There's a a transformation that happens when we respond to Jesus in the gospel where we go from being sinners to saints. And I I might, I mean, some of you might not agree with this, but I I think this is the theologically accurate thing to say. When you come to Christ, you're not a sinner anymore. You still sin, but your identity changes. You're a saint who occasionally sins instead of a sinner who occasionally does saintly things. Right? Because even sinners can do some nice stuff sometimes. It's, it's, about an, it's an identity change that will eventually result in a behavioral change. So, when Paul calls them sanctified saints, he's not saying that their behavior was reflecting their position in Jesus. He's just identifying their position in Jesus as sanctified saints. Now, He goes on in 1 Corinthians 2. I love this passage. Now we have received not, he's saying this to the Corinthian Christians who were really a bunch of jerks. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Okay, I want to really quick explain that word appraise because it's kind of a weird word. Uh, is there anyone here that watches Antiques Roadshow? All right, a few people that need new hobbies. Okay. <laughs> antiques Roadshow is a show where they take antiques places and they appraise them. When they appraise the antiques, what they're doing is they are evaluating. They are assessing. They judge, and then they make a determination. That's what an appraisal is. If you've ever had an insurance settlement or something like that, or maybe sold a house, they have to appraise your house and determine its worth, right? So they look in and they try to discover what, what's going on here. So the word appraise, depending on, if you read the English Standard Version or the NIV or other translations, it can mean to evaluate, to assess, to discern, or to judge. So let me just use some of those words here. Um, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's how the ESV says it. But he who is spiritual judges or evaluates all things, yet he himself is judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. This passage right here lays out either two groups of people or two ways of living. You can look at this both ways. They're equally valid. There is the natural and there is the spiritual. The natural person is the unsaved person, doesn't know Jesus, hasn't given their life to Christ. They don't understand anything spiritual. The spiritual person is the person who has given their life to Christ, is living an obedient life, is seeing fruit in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Natural or spiritual? Got it? Okay. If you remember, these Corinthian saints were not acting saintly, so Paul goes on. Natural or spiritual? Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. So he's created a whole third category. There's natural there's spiritual, and now there's fleshly. Natural is the person who does not know Jesus. Spiritual is the obedient, growing Christian. Fleshly is the saved person who's not acting like it, which is almost the whole Corinthian church. Another, the word carnal is often used here. Okay, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? My wife asked me last night, um, what tone are you going to preach in tomorrow? What's your voice going to be like? And I said, well, if, it's, if it matches the Apostle Paul's, it will be one of frustration. Can you not hear the frustration in his voice? You know, like, listen, there's natural and there's spiritual. But Paul says to the Corinthian church, I can't even talk to you like you're spiritual. You're, you're babies. You can't even, like, you got to have milk. This is a very accurate paraphrase. So the way he's speaking to them is really, he's inviting them to go deeper in Jesus. This is an invitation but he's not tiptoeing around anything. I love Paul, because right in, this, in the middle of this same passage, he says, listen, I don't have wise and persuasive words. 
I just have a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. I'm not going to make this a flowery presentation. You're going to see the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. That's what Paul says. So, I want to explain really quickly what a natural person, a fleshly person, and a spiritual person look like. If we go back to uh, the natural man. First, the natural. This is the unsaved person, okay? Which is what we all were at some point, and some may still be. We all were at some point unsaved because you're not born a Christian. That's not how it works. You might be born into a Christian family. Maybe you decided to follow Jesus for yourself at a young age, but you weren't born a Christian. You responded to Jesus' work in your life. So this is an unsaved person. They do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So an unsaved person rejects the things of the Holy Spirit. Not only do they reject, uh, they can't even understand them. It says in verse 14, look, he cannot understand the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually understood. The spiritual principles, spiritual concepts, don't even make sense to a natural, unsaved person. That word natural is psuchikos, and it means soulish. A person whose driving force is their soul. We all have, this is 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we all have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Right? The unsaved person, their spirit is dead, so all of their decisions come from their soul. Your soul is where your thoughts, your emotions, and your decisions take place. So the unsaved person, it's all emotion or ideas. That's what drives everything they do. And I don't know if you're, you know, if you're like me, but some, you know, your emotions aren't always trustworthy. Right? The unsaved person thinks their emotions are spiritual until they have a spiritual experience and realize, whoa, that was way deeper than my emotions. Right? So your emotions are kind of like your kids. Uh, don't ignore them. Listen to them. Sometimes they're going to say some ridiculous stuff. Sometimes they're going to say some insightful stuff. So pay attention to them, but do not follow them. You understand? Sometimes people are going to say, ignore your emotions. Well, that is a disaster waiting to happen. Okay? Your emotions are signals that tell you what's going on inside. Don't ignore your kids. Don't ignore your emotions. But don't follow your kids and don't follow your emotions. There is something deeper and truer than your emotions, and it is the Spirit. And as Christians, our spirit is united with the Holy Spirit. So we can trust that if we're in union with the Holy Spirit, we follow the Spirit of God in us, Christ in us, rather than our emotions or even our ideas and our thoughts. Does that make sense? Your emotions are in the car, but they're in the back seat. The Spirit is driving... The emotions are in the back seat. The car is your body. Some of us more literally than others. Okay. That was me. Okay. So that's the natural person. The fleshly person. This is from Victory Over the Darkness by Neil Anderson. I just, this stuff description is so good, I just thought I would steal it. The fleshly person is a Christian, spiritually alive in Christ, and declared righteous by God, but instead of being directed by the Holy Spirit, this believer chooses to follow the impulses of the flesh. 
As a result, his mind is occupied by carnal thoughts and his emotions are plagued by negative feelings. Though he is free to choose to walk after the Holy Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit, he continues to involve himself in sinful activity by willfully walking after the flesh. So, the fleshly person is saved. They're just not living like a saved person. Okay? Uh, Paul uses some, I think, pretty direct language when he says, you are infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. So the phrase infants in Christ, I mean, that's just three words, but it, it, I think it perfectly summarizes the idea. Are they in Christ? Yes. Are they mature? No. They're infants in Christ. Now listen, if you've only been following Jesus for six weeks, then you can be an infant in Christ. This is brand new to you. Right? It takes some time to understand this stuff. If you haven't read the whole Bible, if you don't know all the words, if you don't know all the songs, if you don't know the church rules, that's fine. In fact, some of that church rules you probably avoid learning as long as possible. Okay? But if, if you're a brand new Christian, be an infant in Christ and have no guilt about it. But if you've been walking with Jesus like 15 years, 20 years... You shouldn't be an infant anymore. You should be a mature follower of Jesus who is not just uh, taking responsibility for your own spiritual walk, but also discipling other people. This is the most infantile, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, I know it sounds that, but the most spiritually infantile phrase that gets repeated among Christians is when they are upset with a church and they say, I'm not getting fed here anymore. No Christian who takes responsibility for their own spiritual growth has ever said that. Listen, if I went into a restaurant and said, I'm not getting fed here anymore, like, feed yourself, I guess. I, I, I don't know, like, that's the mark of a mature Christian. Can you feed yourself and feed others? The church is not, we don't exist and gather to feed you. <laughs> I don't know if you realize that. Uh, we equip. We don't spoon feed. And so a mature Christian who takes responsibility for their own spiritual life should be able to feed themselves. Now, if you say I'm not getting equipped, well, okay, that's a valid complaint. That's a valid argument. But feeding is something you do to yourself unless you're a baby. Right? So, you know, it's like, it sounds like, you know, my nine-year-old saying, Baba, Baba. You know, like, you're a little old for this, aren't you? So a Christian be like, I'm not getting fed here anymore. Like, unless you're brand new to the faith, feed yourself, and you should be feeding others. Does that make sense? Okay. I, every pastor in America is thanking me right now. All right. Uh, the fleshly person is unable to handle spiritual principles. They behave like mere humans. Uh, are you not walking like mere men? That might sound like Paul is really challenging them. That's because he is. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. So you should be operating at a more spiritual level than a person who does not have the Holy Spirit of God in them. This fleshly, carnal life is 
common but not normal. We all have to do a, I think the church in America has to do a huge reset on what we view as normal. Common is not normal. Does that make sense? Fleshly Christianity is not normal. Earlier this year, we bought our son, he was eight years old at the time, we bought him his first Bible. It's a kid's Bible. It's got pictures in it. Kind of makes me wish my Bible had pictures in it, other than maps. Um, But we bought it for him in February, and by June he had finished it. That's a kid's Bible. It's not like you read, you know, big, fat, golden-edged Bible, but it had 700 pages. I mean, it's a, it's a big, it's, it's appropriate for his age, and he finished it in four months. And I was very proud of him. And he is now on his second. We bought him a new Bible, and he is on that. This dude's going to crank out the Bible twice in one year. Ugh. <laughs> I'll be lucky to get it once. So, as a proud dad, I was kind of bragging on him. When we were on vacation this summer, we were with some friends and family, and I said, Aiden read his first 700-page Bible in four months. And one of our friends said, Oh, that's great, Aiden. I've been a Christian for 30 years, and I've never read the Bible the whole way through. And I was just like, (laughs) And I didn't say anything in the moment, but when they were out of the room, I sat this eight-year-old down. I said, that is not normal. (laughs) Following Jesus for 30 years and never having read the Bible is not normal. Because I am not going to have people tell my kids normal Christianity is ignorant Christianity or lazy Christianity. Do you understand? They're going to think, what's wrong with that, that person? You know, like, you... You can't read one chapter every nine days, which is what it would take to read the whole Bible in 30 years. You can't read three sentences a day, 50 words. But you're telling me the Bible is authoritative? Sorry, I'm really... I'm going to send this uh, sermon to them anonymously. I don't want my kids thinking that's normal. That's abnormal. For people that think the Bible is authoritative... You ought to be running through it a couple times in your lifetime. I'm not going to put a number on how often you need to do it, but 30 years, you better at least have done it once. You know? Right? Okay, some of you are laughing. Some of you are like, (laughs) I need need to go home and read the whole thing tonight. Okay, I get it. Uh, I'm not talking about you, but I am. So, listen, you can take... Bible reading out and substitute anything else in there. Serving, praying, giving. I've been a Christian for 30 years and I don't pray. Okay, that's not normal. I've been a Christian for 30 years and I don't serve in a church. That's not normal, right? I've been a Christian for 30 years and I've never shared my faith. That's not acceptable, right? So we just need a whole big reset about what's normal, okay? Uh, lukewarm is not normal. Jesus said in Revelation to the church in Laodicea, paraphrasing, you make me want to vomit. He said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Right? 
So, I mean, I know maybe it's possible I'm coming across as aggressive this morning. But I'm not more aggressive than Jesus and Paul. Right? Because I'm going to get you out in time for kickoff. But, oh, I bet Paul right now would be like, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, the eagles need our help. So, <laughs> that's fleshly. And let me go, here's the norm. Let's talk about the norm. Okay, we've, we've picked on uh, other people enough. Let's, let's talk about the norm. Verse 15, he who is spiritual discerns all things. Discerning is like a way of gaining information. You might, we, you know, when you uh, receive something intellectually, you learn it. When it's emotional, you feel it. When it's spiritual, you discern it. So he's saying that their way of obtaining information is discernment. Uh, yet they are judged by no one, meaning that they walk in righteousness. They judge themselves, therefore other people don't have to judge them. And they have the mind of Christ. A spiritual person has the mind of Christ. Now, let me tell you, every Christian has access to the mind of Christ. We just don't all operate in it. When you become a Christian, you have the thoughts of Jesus the Holy Spirit takes what's going on in Jesus' mind and he pops it in your mind. But you know what else is in your mind? Your thoughts. And your mom's voice. And your spouse's voice. And it's all jumbled around and you're trying to sort things out, right? So if you have Christ's mind in your mind and you don't know what to make of it, you are double-minded. And to be single-minded is to begin to take your mind and surrender it or submit it to the mind of Christ. What does Jesus think about this? That's what I'm going to think about it then. Right? Like, what are his thoughts on this issue? I'm going to make sure I think the same that he thinks. I'm going to change my thinking, which is the renewing of the mind that Paul talks about in Romans 12. And that's how we're sanctified, the renewing of the mind. Um, so you, the spiritual person not only has access to the mind of Christ, but actually surrenders their mind and operates in the mind of Christ. Now that's normal. Discerning things, mean, meaning you're making your decisions based on what you receive from the Holy Spirit, uh, having the mind of Christ, this is normal. Now listen, the spiritual Christian is not perfect. We don't believe in Christian perfectionism. Okay? Now, some people do believe in that. Some denominations believe in that, that if you follow Jesus close enough, you'll be perfect. We don't believe in that. We don't believe in perfection. We believe in devotion. Amen. This is what I'm asking for. You don't have to be perfect. Just be devoted. Your whole heart given to Jesus. You're still going to have a bad day, and you're going to be hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, and you're going to say something you shouldn't have said, or raise your voice, or a moment of weakness, look at something you shouldn't have looked at. That's Listen, I get it. You're not perfect. But when you do those things, does your heart break with conviction, or do you hide it? We're not asking for perfection. We're asking for devotion and also transparency. That, you know what I'm saying? You might have a sin that you're having a hard time having victory over. A carnal, fleshly Christian will hide it. A spiritual person will bring it out into the light. 
confess it, ask for help, ask for prayer. Does, does that make sense? We're not talking about never sinning. We're talking about in the battle for over sin, you're victorious. You will always battle. <laughs> the battle does not stop. But you can win. You can have victory. Now, I want to read a couple quotes real quick and then close with a video. These are two quotes from two guys I like. The first is from A.B. Simpson. The second is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. A.B. Simpson says this, Many Christians are converted and stop there. They know Jesus as their Savior, but they don't know him as their sanctifier. They do not go on to the fullness of their life in Christ. You will find that the men and women who do not press on in their Christian experience to gain the fullness of their inheritance in him will often become cold and formal. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, You can be regenerate, meaning saved, a child of God, a true believer, and still have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Sanctification is the same as salvation in that it's something that Jesus provides for us. You aren't saved by your own works, neither are you sanctified by your own works. These are both uh, graces that we receive from God. And then this following slide is our church's official summary of what we believe about sanctification. It's the will of God that each believer should be filled with the Holy Spirit and be sanctified holy, being separated from sin in the world and fully dedicated to the will of God thereby receiving power for holy living and effective service. This is both a crisis and a progressive experience wrought in the life of the believer subsequent to conversion. Now listen, I really, we're going to show a video in a moment. I really want to pose this as an invitation. This life is possible. People do live in this. Uh, and this is not about trying harder, it's about dying. You know, like this is not, um, I'll just do better, Lord. Nope. This is death to self. This is, you know, your ambitions, your preferences. It's you saying, those are dead now. I only want what Jesus has for me. So... I don't want anyone to come up and think that they're going to grit their teeth and just try harder this week. <laughs> I'm just inviting you to die. All right, we're going to show a, this is like a four-minute video from a guy named Dr. Ron Walborn, his experience of moving from kind of a powerless, fleshly Christianity to a spiritual experience here. In the summer of 1986, I was about a month away from beginning my first church ministry. Uh, we were at a summer camp and my wife and I were attending the evening service. There was a pastor who was preaching on the filling of the Holy Spirit. At the end of the sermon, uh, I looked at my wife and I said, we have to go forward because we can't begin ministry without the filling of the Holy Spirit, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so we both went forward to the altar and we knelt there. And uh, before we knew it, this man had come up and asked if he could pray with us. He began to pray, uh, asking that God would fill us with the Holy Spirit. And he maybe prayed a minute, not much more than a minute. And then he announced, there, it's done. And I looked at him and I looked at my wife and I said, are you sure? I really believe there should be some evidence that a person had been filled with the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer said he had never met a man or a woman who'd been filled with the Holy Spirit and did not know it. Well, I didn't know it. I didn't feel it. 
Two days later, my wife and I ended up in, arg in an argument and she looked at me and said, nothing happened to you. And I agreed and of course added, nothing happened to you either. And then we began to pray and ask God to fill us with his Holy Spirit. The Lord really used that because it created a hunger in us. It, it made us begin to search and desire, not for any particular gift or manifestation, but for more of God, for his empowering presence. Uh, over the next few weeks and months, we uh, started ministry and there were good things happening in our church, but I knew there had to be more. In fact, I was very tired as I felt like we were doing most of our ministry in our own strength. And so around Christmas time, I remember saying to my wife, if there's not some more, if there's not more power somewhere, we can't do this. We have to quit and go do something that doesn't require this amount of, of effort. One of my elders came to me in January and he showed me a brochure from a conference that was being held in California. And it was a conference on the present day work of the Holy Spirit. We decided that I would make this trip and attend this conference. At that conference, I saw people uh, loving God, worshiping, experiencing his presence in ways that, that I'd really never experienced myself. Through the week, I heard good biblical preaching. Uh, there was a strong emphasis on mission and empowerment for reaching the nations for the gospel of Christ. And I continued to grow in my hunger for God to do something new and fresh. There was a man who was also attending the conference and he was uh, a worker, a ministry worker at this church. And he kept coming up to me. He came up to me on the first night and he said, son, are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And I said, yes, that's why I'm here. And he looked at me and said, you're not ready and walked away. And he came to me the next day and said the same thing. Do you want to be filled with the love of the Father? And I said, yes, that's why I'm here. And again, he shook his head and said, you're not ready and walked away. And so with my hunger, my frustration was also growing, but I kept pressing in. I, I kept asking God to do everything he wanted to do. And so finally on Friday night, when they asked pastors to come forward who needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I think I ran to the front. And as I stood there, uh, who showed up but this man? And he looked at me and he said, son, are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And as I looked at him and prepared to say yes, what came out of my mouth was just cries. And I started to sob. And he looked at me and he said, ah, son, you're ready. And he put his arms around me and prayed that God would fill me with his Holy Spirit. And as I stood there, God met me in a powerful way. In Ephesians, it says that we're sealed by the love of his spirit. And that's what it felt like God did in that moment. When I returned from that conference, there was a noticeable difference in my life, in my ministry, um, in my marriage. Uh, my wife noticed the difference and she really liked it because I loved her more. I loved the people that God had called me to serve more. Uh, there was power in my preaching. We saw people begin to get healed and saved and set free from sins that had kept them bound for years. What I learned in that experience and in other experiences as God has met me and filled me again and again is that without the empowering of God's Holy Spirit, this ministry that we're called to is impossible. So how does Jesus sanctify us? He gives us the Holy Spirit. That's how we know that he is not just in us, but he is living through us. So this is what I would like to present. Um, people have been using this altar behind me for over 80 years to meet with God. Now, there's nothing special or magical about it. There's just something special about Jesus. 
if you need to come up and spend some time with the Lord, like you're ready to graduate from infant in Christ to mature follower of Jesus, and you have some stuff you're willing to surrender, and you're willing to say, Jesus, I'll do whatever you say. I want to make this available to you. Just You can come up and pray by yourself. We're not going to bother you. We don't have a prayer team that's going to um, lead you through any experience or anything like that. This is just going to be open. So I'm going to give you just a few moments to respond, and then I'm going to dismiss us. So uh, come up if you'd like to spend some time up here. I want to conclude, bud, just by praying for, uh, praying blessing over those that are responding to God right now. So would you mind standing with me? Jesus, we know that you're doing work in hearts right now, that you are renewing minds and also uh, refreshing hearts. And I pray that you would continue that, Lord. Um, we have nothing better to do than be changed by you. So we bless what you're doing. We pray for more, more of you, more of your Holy Spirit. Uh, we know that you are infinite, so there's just always more. I pray for humility, I pray for brokenness, I pray for transparency, and that you would meet and empower and heal everyone that's put themselves in the position to receive that. We bless you, Jesus. We bless what you're doing as well. I pray that in the name of Jesus. If you'd like to hang out with us in fellowship, we're going to have some snacks. Please be mindful that people are praying up front, so let's not make a bunch of distractions.